0: There's a prophecy of redemption written in the biblical book of Isaiah. But they who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall march and not grow faint. In 1950, Israel's minister of labor, Golda Meir, she liked to go out to the airport to greet incoming flights from Yemen. Hundreds of planes were landing, discharging dazed Yemenite Jews escaping the extreme hardships in Yemen for a new life in the land of Israel. The historian Martin Gilbert records Golda Meir's memories about one flight in particular, in which she asked an old man if he had ever seen a plane before. No, he said. Wasn't he frightened of flying? No, he said, for it is all written in Isaiah that they shall mount up with wings of eagles. And Golda recalled, his face lit with the joy of a fulfilled prophecy, and the journey's end. So, there's a flip side to the story of the Palestinian exodus that I talked about last episode the 720,000 Palestinians who left or were pushed out from Israel between 1947 and 1949. And that is the perhaps 1 million Jews equally pushed out of the countries of the Middle East and North Africa in the late 1940s and 1950s in response to the creation of Israel. But instead of treating these Jewish refugees as political propaganda, as the Arab states did with the Palestinians, Israel brought them in. It was not an easy task, politically, logistically, or culturally. If the biggest theme of Israeli history is the quest for security, then I would argue that the second most important theme is also the one least talked about, Israel's absorption of the Jews from the Middle East, known as the Mizrahi. It's a huge story, and its importance cannot be understated. For although Israel, and the Zionist movement especially, were mostly the creations of European Jews, Israel is a Middle Eastern country. Its Jewish population today is more than half Mizrahi. This ethnic divide amongst Jews has been as important to the Israeli story as the conflict with the Arabs. So today, that story begins, or at least our telling of it, or at least a broad strokes, since it's way too big to tell all at once. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew I do Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So, the flaw in this podcast, at least so far, is the same flaw that tends to bedevil most discussions about Israel and Zionism. They are very European centric. If you listen to season two of this podcast on the history of Zionism, you could easily be forgiven for thinking that Jews only existed in certain parts of Europe. And that's because the Zionist movement, followed by the creation of Israel, was largely the product of Ashkenazi Jews. The Ashkenazi are one of the major ethnicities within Judaism, and these are the Jews whose ancestry comes from Central and Eastern Europe Germany, Poland, Austria, Russia, the Ukraine, the Baltic states. Anywhere in there, and you're talking about Ashkenazi Jews, how they got there is a whole other history. The other major ethnicity within Judaism is the Sephardi Jews, and these are the Jews whose ancestry is from Spain and Portugal. After the Spanish expulsion in the 1490s, they scattered to other parts of Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the New World, and North and South America, and the Caribbean. The basic storyline for both Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews is that a little over 2000 years ago, the Romans conquered the province of Judea, the Jewish territory that was later renamed Palestine. After that conquest and the centuries of Roman occupation that followed, Jews migrated, forcibly and not, to various parts of Europe. Those that went to the Iberian Peninsula became the Sephardi Jews. Those that went to Germany later in the Middle Ages migrated over to Eastern Europe and Russia and became the Ashkenazi. Understand that there's no religious distinction between these two groups. It's not like Catholics and Protestants, or Sunni and Shia. The differences are geographic, historical, and cultural. For instance, Ashkenazi Jews spoke Yiddish, Sephardic Jews spoke Ladino, a blend of Spanish, Hebrew, and Arabic. Everyone has the Torah, everyone is celebrating the same holidays, but you'll find different foods, music, and ritual traditions depending on which group you're rolling with. But when it comes to Zionism and its development as a movement, it was primarily a movement created by, driven by, and followed by Ashkenazi Jews. And that's because living in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, they were the ones most affected by Christian Europe's persecution. All the big shots we talked about in Season 2, theodore Herzl and Vladimir Jabotinsky and Chaim Weizmann and Menachem Begin, all these guys were Ashkenazi Jews. So Zionism was a movement dominated by the Ashkenazi. Which meant, and this is essential and we'll come back to it, which meant that the Jewish homeland they imagined, designed, and implemented was a product of their European imaginations, European sensibilities, European ideals, and European culture. Tel Aviv was supposed to be, quite explicitly, Vienna on the Mediterranean. Jewish Palestine was supposed to be a European outpost in the Middle East, not a Middle Eastern country for the Jews. The problem with this vision, and the Zionist movement, and season 2 of Jew I Don't Know, is that it left out an entire huge demographic of Jews. Those who never left the Middle East in the first place. for thousands of years since before Islam before Christianity and in some places even before the Romans Jews have been living in the Middle East wars conquests trade routes all kinds of things scattered them around these Jewish communities weren't some backwater villages in the middle of nowhere they were major centers of Jewish life learning and cultural heritage for in some places more than 2,000 years by the 20th century Baghdad was one-third Jewish in Aleppo Syria Jews have been praying at the Great Synagogue there for 1,500 years, and the 10,000-person community held one of the oldest written Bibles ever discovered. In Cairo, an entire section of the city was called, and still is, the Jewish Quarter. In Morocco, Jews could be found buying and selling their goods in the bazaars next to everyone else. In looking at this history, one thing becomes abundantly clear. The Jews are a people of the Middle East. Contrary to Arab claims in the 20th and 21st centuries, and let's be honest, contrary to the ignorance of many Ashkenazi Jews, especially in America, the Jews never left the Middle East. In this long view of Jewish history, Ashkenazi Jews, those Jews who ended up in Central and Eastern Europe, they're the outliers, and the Middle Eastern Jews are the ones who have remained rooted the last 2,000 years. We call these Jews the Mizrahi, those who come from the Middle East to North Africa. They're considered a part of the Sephardic ethnic group. Even though there are some differences, it's common to hear Sephardic and Mizrahi used interchangeably in talking about Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. But increasingly today, there is an effort to separate the two terms, since Sephardic also refers to the Jews from Spain and Portugal. The separate rituals, traditions, and cultures produced by these different Jewish ethnicities is a topic for another podcast episode, Another Time, Actually, it's a topic for an entire season, so let's stay on the history here for a moment. Because you might have thought that if these Middle Eastern Jews never made it to Europe, then they never really encountered Christianity, and therefore the Christian persecution that has been an essential part of Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jewish history. And that's true, they didn't. But the Mizrahi Jews suffered their own forms of oppression under Islamic rule. When we get up to the late 1800s and the emergence of Zionism as a response to the Jewish experience in Christian Europe, we don't get the same thing in the Middle East. This can't be emphasized enough. Zionism was a European Jewish movement by the Jews of Europe, for the Jews of Europe, and designed to respond to and revitalize European ideas for those Jews. At best, for the Zionists, the Mizrahi Jews in the Middle East were an afterthought. But even though the Mizrahi Jews didn't have Zionism, they still faced their own kinds of oppression. As Arab nationalist movements rose in the late 1800s and early 1900s, those movements excluded the Jews and targeted them for persecution. You'll often hear the claim that there weren't any problems for the Jews under Muslim rule until Zionism came along and they started stealing Arab land in Palestine. But that's ridiculous. Anti-Judaism was a significant feature of the Jewish experience in the Middle East. It was certainly made worse by Zionism, as the Arabs in Palestine chose to respond to the Jews there with violence, which exacerbated tensions in other parts of the Middle East. Zionism was a convenient excuse to increase anti-Jewish persecution. And there was something else exceptional about the divide between Middle Eastern Jews and the Jews of Europe. The Mizrahi were mostly left out of the Holocaust. The six million Jews murdered in the death camps were almost entirely Ashkenazi and Sephardi, So there was a deep disconnect in the collective experiences of European Jews and those of the Middle East. The Mizrahi struggled to identify with the constant emphasis on the Holocaust, and European Jews struggled to acknowledge that the Mizrahi, too, had been touched by the events in Europe. For as it turned out, Zionism was going to be relevant even to Jews outside of Europe, because while the Mizrahi may not have experienced the Holocaust, they still faced their own horrors from it. In June of 1941, a pogrom took place in Baghdad. This was the same month that Nazi Germany launched its invasion of Russia, an event that precipitated the systematic mass murder of the Jews in Eastern Europe. So while it's accurate to say that the Middle Eastern Jews did not experience the Holocaust to the extent that the Jews of Europe did, it would be wrong to say that they were untouched by its effects. In Iraq, an Arab nationalist pro-Nazi regime had been in power, helped there by Germany and Italy but the government was defeated in May of 1941, and the British took back control. In the interim, there was a period of instability. The pro-Nazi era regime had been popular, the British were not, and the Jews were seen as having supported the British. All this gave rise to anti-Semitic and pro-Hitler propaganda targeted at the Jews. On June 1st and 2nd, popular anger exploded as Jewish neighborhoods, businesses, synagogues, and the Jews themselves were attacked in a frenzy of violence in what became known as the Farhud massacre some 200 jews were murdered possibly more and hundreds more businesses and homes were destroyed interestingly a lot of jews who lived in mixed communities were hidden and saved by their muslim neighbors but exclusively jewish neighborhoods were totally at the mercy of the rioters with no weapons to fight back with it was a horrifying encounter and it wasn't the only one of its kind in the middle east At times, Muslim lands sheltered Jews fleeing persecution in Europe, providing a safe place to live and thrive. At other times, the Muslims too oppressed the Jews. And always, the Jews were second-class citizens under the Islamic majorities where they lived, always at the mercy of restrictive laws and hateful rulers. The Farhud massacre signaled that after centuries of coexistence and integration in Iraqi society, the Jews there were now on precarious footing. Once the United Nations passed partition, violence erupted against Jewish communities throughout the region. A massacre in Aden, Yemen in 1947 all but ended the Jewish presence there. The creation of Israel marked the last excuse the Arabs needed, and so began the rapid end of more than 2,000 years of Jewish history, culture, and presence in the Middle East and North Africa. Beginning in 1947 and continuing through the early 1950s, and in some cases even into the 1960s, Jewish life in the Middle East and North Africa became unsustainable. Israel provided a turbocharge to the anti-Judaism that had always been present in the Islamic countries. And the war with the Arabs and the Palestinians provided the excuse even for communities far from the fighting to attack the Jews in their own neighborhoods. In an ironic twist of Zionist history, zionism which hadn't been particularly relevant to the middle east jews suddenly became extremely relevant after the jewish state was established in yemen to take one example the jews were facing dire circumstances already there had been a massacre in aden what was still then a british colony following the un's partition vote in 1947 almost the whole jewish community had been driven out as for the rest it wasn't just arab animosity putting pressure on the community Economic collapse and famine, changing ways of life in the post-war world, a realization that immigrating to Israel could fulfill a spiritual longing and cultural renewal, all these things and more influenced the Jews of Yemen. But still, there was no doubt about the persecution they were facing. Someone had to come get them out. In June of 1949, Israel launched a secret airlift they called Operation Magic Carpet. It was an extraordinary feat, but a logistical nightmare, and I won't tell you that the whole thing went smoothly. Israel needed planes, flight crews to maintain them, fuel, places to land and take off, and pilots who weren't afraid of getting shot at, possibly crash landing in a desert wilderness with no water, and navigating almost entirely by sight across featureless landscapes, all to transport tens of thousands of people who had probably never been more than a few feet off the ground in their lives. Warren Metzger was a pilot with Alaska Airlines, a Canadian who had flown in the US Army Air Corps during the war. Alaska Airlines, yes, the same one that flies today, found itself sitting on a surplus of military cargo planes left over from the war and decided to put them to good use around the world. The airline took part in the Berlin Airlift. Alaska volunteered its aircraft, pilots, and crew for the highly secretive, very dangerous Operation Magic Carpet. The pilot Warren Metzger recalled taking off in his Douglas DC-4 from a base in Eretria and flying into Yemen to pick up refugees and fuel. Alaska's crew found exhausted Jews with no luggage, oftentimes no shoes, who had made a desperate journey through the desert, often at night, to reach the landing strip. Many had died along the way, an enormous cost for a community determined to reach the promised land as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The refugees found their wings of eagles, waiting on dusty landing strips. The DC-4 military variant was generally designed to carry about 48 people, but the crews realized they could strip out all the seats and cram in up to 150. In several instances, the Yemenite Jews, who had painstakingly been gathered to the landing zone by Israeli agents, declined to get in. Not because they were afraid, but because it was Shabbat, and they refused to fly. The Israeli agents had rabbis on hand to give permission, since it was allowed to break Shabbat in order to save lives. Lifting off from Yemen, Warren Metzger would fly up the middle of the Red Sea, trying to avoid detection by the Muslim countries on either side. He'd cross into Israel, fly up through the Negev Desert, land at the airport in Tel Aviv, unload the passengers, and then fly the planes over to Cyprus to rest for a few hours before flying back down to do it all over again. They couldn't keep their planes long at Tel Aviv, since periodic bombing raids by Arab forces would destroy aircraft on the ground. Alaska's pilots and crews described living in their planes for months at a time, taking turns piloting for days that lasted 20 hours or more. Beginning in June of 1949 and continuing through September of 1950, Operation Magic Carpet secretly brought some 49,000 Yemenite Jews to Israel. Several thousand Jews remained in Yemen throughout the 1950s and into the 60s, continuing to immigrate to Israel, Britain, and the United States. Perhaps only some 250 Jews remain there today. Operation Magic Carpet was just the first of rescue efforts involving the Jews from every country in the Middle East and North Africa. Immediately after Israel's establishment, the Iraqi government institutionalized anti-Semitic laws and policy, initiating an official program of anti-Jewish discrimination and persecution. At the same time, Iraq refused to allow Jews to emigrate to Israel on the grounds that having more Jews in Israel would benefit the Jewish state. In October of 1948, a prominent Jewish businessman was publicly executed on charges of espionage, scaring the Jewish community into the realization that Jews were no longer safe in Iraq. Despite the ban, Israeli agents were smuggling thousands of Jews out of Iraq into Iran, from where they were secretly airlifted to Israel. By 1950, Iraq realized that there might be a benefit in lifting the ban on immigration. For one thing, Israel was struggling to absorb so many Jewish refugees from around the world, suffering from a lack of housing, food, medical care, educational facilities, and everything else. Ben-Gurion was prioritizing refugees from communist countries, worried that the eastern bloc would close its doors. He was trying to postpone the rescue of Mizrahi Jews out of concern that Israel simply didn't have the economic or logistical capacity to take in everyone all at once so Iraq now saw that allowing immigration, rather than strengthening Israel, could weaken it, so chose this moment to pass a law allowing Jews to leave. And that led to the second benefit, taking all of their wealth. I talked about this in season three on the episode about the Iraqi Jewish archive. See, everything is connected. The immigration law Iraq enacted allowed the Jews to leave with only a couple hundred dollars in cash and 66 pounds of luggage, Everything else, from furniture to jewelry, had to stay behind, and their property was absorbed by the state, earning Iraq a massive windfall. Iraq justified this emigration law, which was essentially an expulsion, by blaming Israel, claiming that it was retribution for Israel expelling hundreds of thousands of the Palestinians. Which, okay, fine, except of those hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, Iraq took in maybe 5,000. Tens of thousands of Iraqi Jews began registering to leave, and by 1951, Israel launched another massive airlift called Operation Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were two biblical prophets who, according to the Torah, helped return the Jews from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. So it was very fitting. Over about a year, the airlift, largely conducted by El Al, Israel's national airline, it brought around 130,000 Iraqi Jews to Israel. One of the world's oldest and most culturally rich jewish communities was reduced in just a couple of years to a few thousand those who remained continued to face severe persecution and today there are probably less than 100 jews left I'll say this, and it might sound harsh and provocative, but it's worth saying. The key difference between Palestinian refugees and Jewish refugees is that Israel took in the Jewish refugees. Of the million or so Mizrahi refugees from the 1940s to the early 1980s, Israel took in more than 600,000. By 1953, Israel's population had doubled from 1948, thanks in large part to the Mizrahi, One of the reasons why the Mizrahi exodus isn't as well known as the Palestinian one is because of this, that Israel did not use those refugees as political propaganda against the Arab states, instead absorbing them and their descendants into Israeli society. But that isn't to say the absorption was easy. For hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi, the harrowing journey to get to Israel might have been the easier part of it. Israel struggled to absorb so many people so quickly, its government services overwhelmed by the demands of hundreds of thousands of suddenly impoverished and terrorized Jews pouring off the runway in Tel Aviv. But even more difficult was the cultural absorption. The Israel of the European Ashkenazi Jews did not much like what they saw in their Middle Eastern Jewish cousins, a cultural and ethnic divide that has never been fully resolved. Mizrahi Jews lagged behind the Ashkenazi in politics, employment, education, housing, access to healthcare, and on and on, even still in many of those areas today. It set up a clash of culture and politics that will later have profound implications for the country. But first things first, Israel had to solve a difficult problem in a tiny country with few resources. Where are we going to house everyone? The music today has been Mizrahi, Barhum Ezra, Dudu Tassa, and the Kuwaitis, and the great Israeli folk artist Ofra Haza. Find links to these songs on my website, JewIDonKnow.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitra out. See you later.